So this is your mission. Should you choose to accept it and nothing will blow up within five seconds of me delivering this message, right? Not an impossible mission. Your beautiful assignment is this. Find someone who's hurting in the next two to three weeks and be Jesus to them. Can we do that? The whole next three weeks, we're doing a series called Beautiful, and today's is your beautiful assignment. And here's the thing I want to propose to you, is that there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of questions, and the fundamental question each person is asking is this, what is the meaning of life and what is my purpose? Everyone wants to answer that question, but only one thing satisfies. There's 21 world religions out there, at least according to my Google search as I researched all of them. There's 21 major world religions. Of those 21, 20 are man trying to find their way into the good graces of a God that they can work hard enough and slave hard enough to possibly get to heaven. There's only one that brings love and God to us, and that is not a religion, but a relationship with Jesus. It's called Christianity, but it's more than that. And so we have all these voices out there, and I thought, you know, we even have phones now that want to tell us what the meaning of life is. So I asked this iPhone 4S who has a little contraption called Siri. Have you heard of it? Let's ask Siri what the meaning of life is. What is the meaning of life? I don't know, but I think there's an app for that. There's an app for that. Okay, let's try this one. Siri, are you saved? No comment. <laughs> what is my purpose in life? I don't know where that is. And they have many, many other little things that you can play around with. The point is this. Sometimes these kind of responses, that's really what the world's response is to us when we're asking these fundamental questions. I, I spent many years being an agnostic slash atheist asking those questions, but it wasn't until that God got a hold of me through well-meaning and good people similar to yourself when someone just said, you know what, I care and I'm going to share that plan with you. And I was jaded and hard and rebuking and mean and defensive. Does anyone know anyone else like that in your life? Does that ring a bell with anybody? Love can overcome a multitude of things. And so our beautiful assignment as Christ followers is simply this. We have to know God and we need to make him known. So I want you to turn in your Bibles. You can also follow through. We're going to start in Luke chapter 9, and I want to set the stage for you of kind of what Jesus is doing at this point. We're in Luke chapter 9. It's right after Matthew in your Bible. And at the time, I want to, I want to set the stage for you. The first two and a half years of Jesus' ministry, he's going from what would be considered Galilee, where he was born, you know, Nazareth, and he was born in Bethlehem, but he lived in Nazareth. So it was the northern region up here. Down here is Jerusalem. And Every year they would go down to Jerusalem and come back and travel. This is in his third year of ministry, and he is beginning his descent into the crucifixion. And so we're about six months prior to him arriving into Jerusalem for him to be the sacrificial lamb for our sins at the cross. And so we pick it up in, in chapter 9, Luke 9, verse 51. 
As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So you say, well, what does that matter? Big deal. What, what, what was the big deal with them? Well, here's the big deal. The big deal is this. The Samaritans hated the Jews. They were a little racist towards the Jews. In fact, years ago, many, many, many centuries prior to, Samaritans were of Jewish ancestry, but they intermarried with some pagan religions. And, and so what transpired from this is kind of a bizarro religion. They, they, they had their own pastors. They had their own they had their own Bible. I mean, it was just bizarro stuff. Uh, and so the Jews and the Samaritans were at odds. So Jesus had gone through Samaria before. You can, you can look at it another time. But in the Gospel of John, there's a woman at a well that he meets. This is in the early part of his ministry. And he completely transforms her world. He, 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 he identifies her sin, but she, she comes out of it. And she tells everybody about this man. And so Everybody in Samaria is talking about him. Now, that was in year one. Now we're in year three, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. The Bible says he set his face like flint to the cross. He knew his purpose. He knew his beautiful assignment, which wasn't beautiful. And so he's back in Samaria. He's back. Now, keep in mind that miracles have happened in Samaria. All kinds of crazy, awesome things have happened in Samaria. So why wouldn't they welcome this man on this journey at this time? Good question. Here's the reason. Here's the reason. Because at this time, he had an entourage. Jesus was a rock star. He had thousands upon thousands of people. To put it into context, it'd be like this. Imagine going into a small little town here in Wisconsin that housed maybe 40 people. And then you have Green Bay that has 200,000. I want you to get a picture of that in the Brown County area. That's what we're talking about. So in this, these small little villages and towns along the way in the northern part, as he went through that, that means they had to accommodate not just Jesus, but his disciples. Remember I said they didn't like Jews? So they didn't welcome Jesus because they didn't like his disciples because they didn't like what they stood for because he didn't like their tribe. Here's mistake number one that they made. They didn't receive Christ because he didn't fit their mold. He didn't fit their tribe. And he was going to Jerusalem. Well, Jesus, why don't you come to our temple and worship the way we want? Here's the problem. They wanted to make Jesus in their image of their religion. How many know that doesn't work? God will not ever be in our box. And so I, I wrote down a few practical uh, real-world examples for you to kind of identify with. But it would, be, it would be something like this. You're in the office place. And somebody comes to you with a, with a proposal, let's say you're in sales, and your boss, who pays your salary, asks you to do something that he knows that you are adamantly against. Let's say, for instance, that he knows you're a Christian. And part of the deal with this big company that you have to get into is that you have to go meet this other company, and you're going to meet them at a strip club. Can we say moral dilemma? What do you do? Or your boss in the real world says, I see these numbers here. I just want you to know I've fudged them a little bit here and there. I'd like you to look the other way. And if you do, there's a $30,000 bonus waiting for you tomorrow. 
Now, those are extreme examples, but has anybody ever felt the temptation similar to that for compromise? Has anybody? Because I have. And those are the kind of situations that we're going to face as Christ's followers. Jesus was resolute in what he had to do. He knew where he had to go. He knew why he had to do it. And he did it out of love. As Christ's followers, here's the thing we're going to find over and over and over again. You will have to take up your cross. The question is, what does that mean? Because if it means what I, what, I, what I sometimes interpreted in my atheist days, taking up your cross did not sound fun. It sounded, it sounded kind of hard. Anybody ever had that thought? That sounds hard. But here's the deal. The cross is an instrument of death. All it's saying is, is that I'm going to die to the way I've done things before, and I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. We've had a religious mindset that says, I'm going to take up my cross and no one's going to like me and everything, everybody's going to make fun of me and it's going to be hard and, and uh, God's just going to kind of expect me to be perfect and that's religion. Jesus died to take you above that mindset. He died and did all the work for you so you can fulfill your beautiful assignment. Can I get an amen? He will empower you. Remember that. But the mistake that assignment roadblock number one that the Samaritans made was, well, you know, we like Jesus, we're around Jesus, but we're not all in because we want him in our image. Now, eight years ago, I had a house in New Franken. We lived here before we went off to Minneapolis. Uh, I became a, uh, I did sports in Minneapolis in the broadcast uh, journalism world for about three years from 05 to 08, since became a preacher. But before we left, I had a neighbor who was not married to this woman, and they lived together, and they were probably in their 50s or early 60s, and she was a widower, and they deeply loved each other. They're very nice people, wonderful people, very, very nice people. I witnessed to him every day, and I did it mostly with my actions, and occasionally we'd have God talks. Every day I loved on these people. And finally, we got to that conversation where we had this conversation, and I said, hey, man, I just I got to ask you. You guys love each other, right? Why don't you just get married? Just do it upright in the eyes of God. Here was the pushback. The widow had benefits from Georgia Pacific. And if she remarried, she lost it all. And it was a significant chunk of change. So I love Jesus because I go to my church every day. Every day I go to my church. Every week I go to my church. I'm there. I never miss. I have perfect attendance. I don't even miss when it's summer and, you know, Somewhere in Wisconsin. She never missed, but yet, blind to the idea that God could give her something. She refused to lay it down because she wanted Jesus in her box, in her way, in her time. If you want to walk on water, you've got to destroy that mindset. Culture cannot dictate your Christianity. Can I get an amen? So we like Jesus as long as he does what we tell him, but Jesus doesn't do that. Uh, they didn't, the Samaritans did not want Jesus or his miracles at that time. Now, here's the redemptive, the beauty of Jesus. So they reject him right there. They move on. But in Acts chapter 8, read the, read the second part of the story. In Acts chapter 8, after Jesus is gone and his disciples are spreading the gospel, in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes back to that very region and the Holy Spirit blows up that place with miracles. People get saved and God moves. Here's the point for you. Sometimes we have to sow seed and the harvest comes later. 
Sometimes you have to be that voice in somebody's life that's the bad guy, and you move right on through, and 10 months later, somebody else comes along, and they get it, and the Holy Spirit moves. This is pretty cool. Has anybody experienced that before? You plow, someone else watches them reap. And so what happens is, is that as you, as you begin to, to, to walk in, in the things of God, you're going to experience all kinds of things. I'm never going to sell you that it's going to be perfectly easy in your walk with Christ. I can't do that. What I can tell you is that you will have, un, you will have the backing of heaven itself in your behalf if you simply choose to take up your cross. What does that mean? It means I can't, I let grace do it for me. Grace is sufficient. Grace is the divine influence of Jesus Christ on your life and his favor. How many of you know that he has unlimited resources in heaven? There's no sickness in heaven. There's no disease in heaven. That means you begin to learn that you can expect God to be your healer. You can expect him to be your banker. You can expect him to be your husband if you don't have one. Can I get an amen? He can be everything you need him to be. He just won't be what you want him to be. He is God. And he will blow up our paradigm sometime. And here's the thing, the last part on this portion of scripture I want you to camp on. It's very important. Jesus, what does the Bible say? It says they went through. They didn't camp out for six weeks begging and pleading. They didn't throw their pearls to pigs and say, but you don't understand. Here's my little prayer tip for you. Being a Christ follower is this. Sometimes you have to just pray behind people's back over and over and move on. Sometimes when people are coming at you and they're, they're, they're dumping everything on you over and over and over again, they're not hearing you. You're trying to be Jesus to them. You're trying to help them see that they're missing it here. And you've spent ridiculous amounts of time trying to fix them. How many understand they're not going to be fixed? You need to move on. That's a word from somebody today. Some of you are trying to fix people that don't want to be fixed because they've got their own bizarro religion going on. They've got their own bizarro thought going on. You've got to cut loose and let them go. God can get them back later. You're not God. Amen? All right, moving on. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. So we're going to go to the next roadblock, assignment roadblock number two. Luke 9, verse 54. I'm reading out of the Amplified. And when his disciples, James and John, observed this, they said, Lord, do you wish to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, you don't know what sort of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them from the penalty of eternal death. And they journeyed on to another village. So here's the temptation. When people reject us, my natural inclination is to want to bring fire down from heaven. They hurt my feelings. In the name of Jesus, bring it down. Burn them. And then the Lord deals with me about the many, many, many times that I gave lip to people who were well-meaning people who did everything they could to help me. And it was like a fast forward of, all my life, it was like, remember that person that you made fun of? Yep. Remember that person you called Jesus freak? Yep. Remember that person that you told them were weird? Yep. Remember that person? It was like a fast forward movie and I was broken. And I realized that many, many, many times in our lives, people are knocking, knocking, knocking. They're sowing seed. I can't remember how many countless people have sown seed into my life. 
I thank God for those people who had the guts to tell me not what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear. Thank you, Lord, for those people. And that God didn't bring fire down from heaven, that he did allow circumstances to come into my life that brought me to repentance. Here's another thing you have to realize in the culture that we're dealing with. Not everybody wants help, and on the exterior, everything looks fine. In this economy, not everybody has lost a job. Not everybody's lost their marriage. They're cruising along. They're just Green Bay nice. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're just Green Bay nice. Everything's nice. In fact, March weather is very, very nice. And we're all nice. It's Pleasantville. But beneath that, how many of you know beneath that, there's always a cauldron. There's a God-sized vacuum that no one can fill. Not pleasure, not money, not status or prestige. And we hear these truths over and over and over again. But when you become a Christ follower and you get it and you're not hanging around Jesus, but you're actually with Jesus, he will change your circumstances. He will empower you to do what you cannot do for yourself. And the beauty of it is he'll blow up somebody else's life too. He is awesome. But you will have to receive rejection from time to time. What I've learned as a pastor, when, when people come and go from church, and they do, sometimes they're just not a fit at Life Church or another church. Maybe they like something a little bit better at another place. I thank God for the millions of churches that we do have. I just want more people in them. And I just want to do my part. I don't take it personally. Well, I want to sample this church here and that church there. You know what? All I care about, get a church where you can grow in. Thank you, Jesus. I'll do the best I can with who's here. And then I don't take it personal. Most pastors I've met with who people come and go, they, they, they have had that temptation to take it personal. And then the Lord really spoke it clear to me, and he said, Ryan, since when is it about you? Yeah, well, Lord, I didn't preach well enough, and I said a lot of stuff about money last week, and nobody came back. It's not about you, Ryan. It's not about you. Luke 9, verse well, let me say this, and if you have a pen, you can write this down. This is important. Your reaction to rejection matters. Your reaction to rejection matters. It's not personal. Pray behind their back and move on. Just to give you an example, a personal example, there was a guy in the TV news business I worked on for four years. I, I, every time I would, was out of line, he was my boss, and uh, I would say, I'm sorry, I, I did not carry through that assignment with a good attitude, I apologize. I got to be known as the repenter. And it, they would make fun of me for it. I mean, like, you know, here's the thing, though. When I went off and God had promoted me and gave me a ridiculous salary in Minnesota and then moved on to a larger market, and, they, and, and th that person gave me a hug, said, I'm a Christian today because of you, and he was one of my best friends. He and I nearly came to blows when I first got to Channel 2 in Green Bay. Wonderful human being, love him dearly. Tell me God can't do something for you in your life. I was not a pastor then. God says he's no respecter of persons. What he'll do for me, he'll do for you. Assignment roadblock number three is the excuses. Jesus will test your resolve. If Jesus had to set his face towards Jerusalem and dying on the cross, we have to lay our agendas down at the cross too. Luke 9, verse 57. Reading out of the Amplified, and it occurred that as they were going along the road, a man said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you, I, wherever you go. That's good talk. That's big talk. Verse 58, and Jesus told him, foxes have lurking holes and the birds of the air have roosts and nests, 
but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, you have to understand the context of this. Uh, remember that Jesus has a rock star entourage. We're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of people. He has just fed the 5,000. That doesn't include women and children because in that day, they only counted the men. It was 5,000 men, but scholars estimate that probably 15,000 people he fed. He's got a lot of people around him. So imagine as a human being standing before Jesus, he can read his body language. There's a reason Jesus said it that way. Because how many understand that Jesus can peer right through your mirage, right through your, your mask, and he can cut straight to the chase and call you out for what it is in you? And this man, I'm convinced, knew that he was a big talker, but I believe Jesus saw through him and said, look, you're not going to be comfortable. You are not going to be comfortable. Because, and, and scholars have taken this to say and indicate that Jesus was poor. I beg to differ with that. He had a treasurer. He had an entourage. He had more than, you know, everything Jesus touched multiplied. Read your Bible. It's amazing. Everything he touched multiplied. How can we say that Jesus was poor when he's the God of the universe? He is not poor. He is more than enough. And in this case, what he was talking about is you've got to lay down your agendas and your idea of comfort. And I will tell you, it is hard for me to sometimes lay things down that I really, really like. But it is the challenge. And the, the lie of the enemy is, oh, if you lay that down, it's gonna be, you're going to have a boring life. If you lay this, this hobby down, I like to play golf, but I don't like to pay 70 bucks a round on a preacher's salary. I do like to play golf. However, it's not the primary thing. But any of us can, can, can put something above Jesus, and what Jesus is saying is there may be times in your life where you need to be inconvenienced. You may need to ask someone to come to Easter at Life Church. You may need to, to ask someone for help when your pride doesn't want you to. I, whatever it may be. The point is, is that following Jesus isn't always going to be comfortable. He's going to ask us to take us places we don't necessarily always want to go. I write this, convenience Christianity is not always convenient, right? So guy number two, Luke 9, verse 59, as we continue in our text. Guy number two, and he said to another, become my disciple, side with my party, and accompany me. But he replied, Lord, permit me first to go and bury, await the death of my father, but Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and publish abroad throughout all regions the kingdom of God. You notice he says, I will, but first. We have to drop the notion that there is nothing that comes first above Jesus. Nothing. And I've learned that throughout the years that God will allow me to put other things first. He will. And then I have to pay the piper for it. Have you ever had a, a virus in your computer and the computer works, but it just doesn't work right? Because you downloaded something you perhaps shouldn't have? The computer still works, but the thing is a little off, correct? So the technician has to come in and kind of completely reconfigure it and get it back on track. Nothing can come first. And here's the thing. Nothing can come first over Christ. But like in that day, it sounds kind of hard. As I read that, I'm thinking, man, Jesus, you're kind of tough on this guy. I mean, he's just trying to bury his dad, right? But you have to understand, his dad wasn't even dead yet. And in the Israel, in that ancient culture, those were long, drawn-out things. 
Jesus was trying to put to the core issue, which is this. Your security is in your identity with people. Your security is in this. You understand every confrontation Jesus has with people in the Bible is there for a purpose. They all have different issues. Remember the rich man? Do you really think God is asking every rich person to give everything they have to the poor? Of course not. Say, of course not. He, if he asked you to, then you would, correct? Or would you? Each person that, when Jesus dealt with Peter, he denied him three times. He, had to, he asked Peter three times after the resurrection, uh, feed my sheep, and he asked him three times because he denied him three times. He knew what Peter needs. He knows what you need because he's an individual, personal God, right? I mean, he loves us deeply and personally. In this guy's case, his culture, his identity, and things that he wanted to do in the future were ahead of Jesus. Translation. Someday, Jesus, I will serve you, but right now I need to be served in the bar. Bring me another one, bartender. Bring me about 20 more, bartender, because I want to party more than I want Christ. I have a generation of people out here in Green Bay, Wisconsin, that night in, night out are being sold a spirit that will not do good for them. Now, I'm not here to pick on drinking. I'm not here to say, I, I personally, I, I joke, I say, well, you know, if I were God, we'd be in prohibition, but I'm not God. And I'm not picking on an occasional imbiber, but I will tell you, can we all agree that alcohol has really significantly messed up our state? We are the state of intoxication, and we're proud of it. We go to the Rose Bowl and out drink the place, and we're like, ooh, Wisconsinites, aren't we great? <laughs> We've, we've lost our, <laughs> I want people to get drunk on the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that you can't have a glass of wine. I'm not saying that. I'll tell you what it'll do for me. It, it, God spoke to me personally and said, you can have that glass of wine, but it'll lead to 10. And it'll kill you. Choose. Well, for me, it was pretty simple. I'm saying this. What God asks you to do personally, you've got to can the excuses, and you can't say, I'll do it someday, because guess what? We're not promised someday. We're given right here, right now. We are in the moment. And God is not the God of I was. He's not the God of I will be. He is I am. He's in the present. His name is I am. And he is for you. Remember that. Every lie that the enemy says that when God asks you to lay something down, the enemy will be right there in your ear saying you will not have any fun and it won't work and don't do it. Every time. Ask me how I know. Don't build a church. No one will come. You're not qualified. You don't have a doctorate degree. Who do you think you are? Every obedient step that we face, we always have that nee, 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 little voice. You know, if you pray 15 minutes in the morning, you'll have a nagging voice that says, you prayed 15, but your friend over there prayed 30. You didn't repent enough. Whose voice is that? It's the enemy. Jesus came to give you life, to be above that, to not listen to that stuff, and to listen to those voices that would say your future is better off. Sin is great for a season until you reap the consequences. Quote, sin's never great for a season. Putting off what God has asked you to do in the future, putting off is not a good idea. His assignment is now. And guy number three, 
Luke 9, verse 61. Another also said, I'll follow you, Lord, and become your disciple and side with your party, but let me first say goodbye to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back to the things behind is fit for the kingdom of God. Here we go again, but first, let me look back at my past. If you're constantly reliving the past, if you're constantly in the past, it will detonate your future. And the enemy will send people along your life to remind you of your past and tell you how worthless you are and tell you who do you think you are and tell you you're the sum of all of your ridiculously bad choices. Whose voice is that? That's not Jesus. What if I told you you really are more than a conqueror and you have what it takes to fulfill your divine assignment and it's not that hard. It's simply dying to what was and becoming what will be. You're a glorious creation in Christ. The problem is you don't believe it. Believe it. I spent 30 years believing that my self-esteem was like this. And the more my self-esteem was like this, the more I had to prove and validate myself. It gets tiring to tell everyone how great you are. And most people don't care and they don't want to listen. But start being Jesus to someone and telling them how great they are, you'll get their attention real fast. Not that they're perfect, but that you're loving them. And Jesus is saying, if you're stuck in your past, if you look back, there's a saying that I hear all the time. I love this. There is no plan B. There's only one plan. Jesus is plan A. And you know what the best part of plan A is? Is that each of us have a different plan A. Your plan is different than my plan. I can't tell you how to live your life because God designed you specifically for a purpose. Let's ask Siri what her purpose is. Because I'm weird that way and I can. Siri, what's your purpose? I'm here to help. Just ask what can I say and I'll show you what I can do. Let's try that again. I didn't like that answer. Siri, do you have a purpose in life? She's avoiding me. She doesn't like me anymore. Siri, what is your purpose? I'm here to help. Just ask what can I say and I'll show you what I can do. Okay, you're not showing me what you can do. Anyway, my point is this. I tried. Uh, we have a purpose. We have a plan. We have a good plan. God wants to give you the desires of your heart. Now, what does that mean? It means that there's something in you. You have a ministry. You have a, you have a calling. You, you don't have to be a pastor to have a calling. Each of you, there's something significant inside of you that, that wants to do something for the glory of God. You've just been told that year after year that you can't. You've been told that it's going to be boring. Here's the fears. Let me read. These are some common ones. People romanticizing over their past like their glory days. Have you ever met the ex-football quarterback? 30 years later, he's still reliving the state championship game that he dropped the ball with five seconds left and he can't get beyond it. 
that guy. I can't forget the big game guy, you know? It's like a Budweiser commercial. Real Men of Genius, remember those? They can't get past it. There's no plan B. The Israelites couldn't get past their history. Here God's brought them out of Israel, brought them out of Egypt in slavery, and they're, they're, they're about to take the promised land, and they're complaining about the food that God gave them supernaturally. They're complaining. I mean, this is, this is, this is our tendency, but we don't have to live like that. The fear is this. If I accept my assignment from God, and I'm all in, my life will be worse with Jesus than without him. I mean, really? The reason the pews aren't filled today in every church, I believe, is for two reasons. One, we're not preaching enough grace and loving people. Number two is because they don't believe what Jesus really said, that they really have an amazing plan. God has an amazing plan, right? Otherwise, shouldn't we be bursting at the seams? My job is to preach radical grace, which leads to radical obedience. If I preach radical obedience, you're going to sin more because you need Jesus to have radical obedience. You get it? The Bible says the strength of sin is the law. The more, the more I try to change my piggy behavior, the more I do what I don't want to do. The more I preach radical grace, what Jesus has done on the cross 2,000 years ago, this assignment's pretty simple. When I follow his plan, the Bible says that when sin enters into our life and it takes dominion, the more that you try to fix your sin in your own power, the more it will have a, a, a constant effect on the rest of your life, and you'll continue to get worse and worse and worse. It's like a disease. But the great healer can give you radical grace and help you fulfill your beautiful assignment. There is something I'm going to unveil to the church in three weeks. I can't tell you exactly what that is yet because, well, it's first of all a secret. I can't. <laughs> but when I unveil this the week after Easter, there's going to be no mistaking. You're going to go, oh, wow. Only God could do that. But you know, I've lived three years of this. Oh, wow. Only God could do that. Many of you are having those kinds of experiences. And if you're not, that's the question I'm asking you. You're on assignment. If you're not having those, oh, wow, God, what an amazing thing. Let's be honest. Can we be honest? You were designed to have them. You were designed to go, wow. You were never designed to try to make it all happen on your own. You were designed for purpose. You were designed for a plan, designed to give power to your life. You were never designed to be apart from God, not around Jesus, with him. With him. So when you say, I can do all things in Christ, which strengthens me, that's not your willpower. You have a great plan and the assignment. The hardest part of fulfilling your assignment to reach a lost and hurting world is to simply die to your strength and your ability and to say yes to his. Isn't that great? It's a beautiful thing. Heads bowed and eyes closed, please. The law demands... Grace supplies. What needs to die in you that grace can abound and help you fulfill your beautiful assignment? Something has to die. Our control, our looking back at the past, being stuck in the past. Maybe it's our fear of the future and trying to control. Don't miss Jesus when he walks through. Set your face resolutely 
for his plan. I'm telling you, one day with Christ is better than a thousand outside of his gates. One day with Christ in your heart, legitimately in your heart, is different than a thousand days in the world's finest restaurants, owning a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. That's God's. God is for you and not against you. And that is a truth that you have to get into your mind. It has to get buried into your heart. If you are not hearing that preached, if you're not receiving that, it's because the enemy is lying to you. He's telling you that what culture has to offer is better, and it is a lie. You can have an extraordinary life. And it doesn't have to just be Sundays. It can be Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. You can live to give. You can live to be and do something larger than yourself. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Raise your hand if God has touched you in one of these areas. If you have been in fear, thank you, sir. If you have been in fear, if you've been looking back at your past and you've been dwelling and meditating on it, it is, thank you, many hands. If it has corrupted your assignment, you're afraid to talk to people about Christ because your life is a mess and you don't know how to fix it. The glory of God is to fix your mess so you can be a message to someone else. Say, I'm going to do that in Jesus' name. You can do it in Jesus' name. Some of you may be stuck in, in the fear of the future. You don't know what the future. He is not the God of I will be. He is right here, and he will tell you what you need to know when you need to know it. Receive that in Jesus' name. Some of you may have put your... If you've put your identity in tribe or in a people group or in a, in a circumstance or, or around people that, that may not be good for you and you know it and you know it. And for a season, you need to call, be called out so that you can get refreshed and restored and then go back in. If this people group is destroying your walk with God, I want you to have the guts to raise your hand right now. Thank you. Several. The Holy Spirit's moving. Now I'm going to pray over each of you. Father in heaven, I believe right now that you have performed surgery because you care, because you love us. I thank you for the good work that you have done today. And it is my heartfelt, gut-felt prayer that it is stays deposited, that they will know your radical love, your radical grace, and it will transform their life, and it will be contagious, and they will be bringing streams of people to you. This church, another church, doesn't matter, but they will be on fire for their assignment. It doesn't make sense to go to your death. What makes sense is to be resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. Radical life change. I speak it over every person in this house. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Last thing I want to say, the temptation will be to either blow it off to recognize that, oh, preached good, but it doesn't affect me. Don't let that deposit that's in you go. Don't let it go. It's not me. It's not preacher speak. It is the spirit of the living God. Receive it, okay? Just receive it.